Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Troy Wilson, President and CEO of Cura Oncology. Great to have you on today, Troy. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rahul. Thanks for the invitation. Wonderful. So, Troy, to kick us off and to set the stage for the conversation, would love if you could talk to us about how you initially got interested in biotech and the arc of your career. I've had sort of a winding career. When people ask me about it, I don't know that I would have predicted it or even would recommend it, but it's actually served me well. So, I earned a PhD in bioorganic chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley. While I was there, I worked for a guy by the name of Peter Schultz, who now is president of the Scripps Research Institute. And Peter is an amazing scientist and just a force of nature. Quite a number of people in this industry at one point or another have trained with Peter. Kevin Judice, who was recently on your podcast, former CEO of DICE, Kayvon Showcat at UCSF, Dave Liu at Harvard. You go through LinkedIn and it's just a huge group of people. Peter was both a great scientist and really entrepreneurial. He learned at the knee of Alex Zaffaroni, who started a whole host of companies in the Bay Area. And Peter was always very entrepreneurial. I ultimately, after earning my PhD role, I decided that academic science wasn't for me. Frankly, I wasn't a good enough scientist. I was in a collection with a bunch of people who I knew what good academic scientists looked like. I told Peter I was going to go to law school and without missing a beat. First of all, I didn't seem surprised. And he said to me, you should go to business school. And I listened to him and I said, you know, thank you very much. I think I'm going to take a little bit more conservative path and I'm going to go to law school, earned a law degree from New York University, corporate finance and securities law. Peter, almost immediately after I graduated, recruited me back to what's called GNF, the Genomics Institute of the Novartis Research Foundation. And I've worked with Peter at three points in my career. Those were the first two, graduate student and at GNF. And one of the reasons I went to GNF was the opportunity to get closer to biotech entrepreneurism. And it was a great start to the industry. I was there for about four and a half years. The Institute grew from a handful of people to 450 people. And at that point in time, I left to start my first company, a company that still exists today called Ambrix, where we used non-natural amino acids to do protein engineering. That was eight companies ago. I have been CEO of every company since Ambrix, and it's been a remarkable ride. I said to you, I'm not sure I would have predicted it. People ask me, should I get a law degree? It's a long time in school. But in this sort of highly technical, highly regulated industry, it serves you really well. And I've been fortunate to have had a lot of good experiences, a lot of great teams. And I give a lot of credit to Peter Schultz and so many of my colleagues from that time in my life. Great. Thanks for that background, Troy. Since you've done the CEO thing for so many companies now, I'm curious if you could walk us back to the first time you were CEO and what's changed from when you were first-time CEO to now seventh-time CEO? 
So the first time I was CEO was a company called Intellikine. Intellikine was a company that, that I co-founded with Kayvon Shokat, still at UCSF, Yi Lu, and Ping Duren, who are now at KQ Biosciences. All close friends, very tight network. What I've learned is I was pretty conflict avoidant the first time, and that doesn't serve you well <laughs> when you're managing teams. And as much as we sort of hate to admit it, biotech drug discovery and development, commercialization is a process where there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of disagreements about whether and how to do things. And I think one of the major differences for me has been I just get in much earlier and have developed a set of skills that make me a much better manager, a much better leader, really help me to get the very best out of people. Biotech, unlike tech, is more of a team sport. You don't typically see the Elon Musks, the Jack Dorseys, the Zuckerbergs of the world. It's very much a team sport. So I think what makes really strong CEOs are CEOs that know how to get the best out of their teams. And I have watched others, I've learned and listened from others, and I've really tried to develop that part of my professional and personal skill set. And Troy, out of curiosity, when in your, across those seven companies, did you end up realizing the conflict avoidant thing? Because that certainly resonates with me. And then how did you course correct over time? So I recognized it right at the beginning when I was sort of running the show. And I was chief business officer at Ambrix. My good friend, Tom Daniel, who went on to have a remarkable career at Celgene, was chief scientific officer at Ambrix. We didn't have a CEO at that time. And what I learned was you'd have a meeting and you wouldn't want people to get upset or go away from the meeting unhappy, right? And the problem with that is People go away from the meeting with very different ideas about what did we talk about? What did we decide? What are we going to do? And all you just do is kick the can down the road. So now what I've done, and this is through a combination of both personal executive coaching and team dynamics and team development, get in there, frame the issue as uncomfortable as it is, give it to people in advance, because I've learned if you tell me something, like I can process information very quickly. Not everybody's that way. Some people, they need time to go away and think about it. So you've got to make sure that there are going to be people on your team who are like that. And then make sure you bring the whole discussion to a close. What did we agree on? Does anybody disagree that we decided X, Y, and Z? If somebody raises their hand, continue the discussion, as uncomfortable as it can be. That's, Rahul, really what I had to lean into as a leader. And that affects your personal life, your life with loved ones, things like school boards. I mean, that's basic human interaction, but it's not something that graduate school or being a student really teaches you how to do. You're kind of a lone gunman. And then you get into these team environments and you have to learn and or develop a completely different set of skills. Since you stated lone gunman, being a CEO can oftentimes be a lonely journey as well. I'm curious if that's been your experience the seventh time around, or has that aspect of the journey changed as well, just given the inherent risk in everything we do in biotech? Being CEO is, I think, in many ways, the loneliest job in biotech. And it's lonely because you want to project a certain level of confidence and conviction to your team, to your board of directors, to investors from the outside. And this is a business where 
you are, at least in what I do, you're treating patients who have fatal or life-threatening diseases. And it is a business of twists and turns and bumps. And I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience is you don't often have a lot of people you can confide in. And so it's good to have other CEOs, small networks, where you can call somebody up and say, look, I can't get too much into the detail, but let me just share with you what I'm thinking. And I have quite a number of very close friends now who are either current CEOs or former CEOs that I can just bounce things off of, or I can just vent to. And you always just feel better because you realize everybody's going through the same thing. We're all facing the same challenges, whether they're the capital markets, the trials and tribulations of drug development, regulatory challenges, we're all going through the same thing. You have to reach out, Rahul, I think, and build those networks. That's what I've really tried to do. Yeah, it's a wonderful point. I think it's easy to just put your head down and you have to seek others out that are going through a similar experience to fight that loneliness of being a CEO. Certainly agree, Troy, that's a great point. Now that you've founded a number of companies, I'm curious, is there a common theme across those companies that then makes you say, hey, you know what? Yes, I'm going to work on this for the next couple of years of my life. Is there a common thread across each of them? I think the common thread is a really good team. If we had done in any of the companies I've been associated with, and you've just go back through the last sort of four, right? It's Kerr Oncology. I co-founded Avidity Biosciences. Sarah Boyce is now CEO and doing a remarkable job. I co-founded Araxis Pharma and Wellspring Biosciences with Kayvon, did all the pioneering KRAS work. If we had done it, Rahul, the way I'd wanted to do it, you know, at times we would have been a failure. That's the other thing you learn as CEO is there are times when you push to do it your way. And there are times when you say, hmm, maybe he or she has a point. We should try something a little different. And because this is so cross-collaborative, so highly technical, you really need a very, very high-performing, high-functional team. I typically, if you look at the companies that I've done, they're big problems like drugging RAS, delivering oligonucleotides to non-hepatic tissues, developing menin inhibitors, or bringing farnesyl transferase inhibitors back from the dead. I don't shy away from tough problems. I'm also pretty good. I think my superpower is recruiting both at the team level and the board level. And ideally, you want to have preclinical work that helps you de-risk the clinical experiment. I see too many people who are just plowing ahead into the clinic without really pressure testing it. You're never going to get you know, the perfect answer, but this is a business where you and I, we get compensated for discharging risk, technical risk, clinical risk, regulatory risk. So the faster you can discharge that risk and the cheaper, the better off for your employees, for the patients who need it, and ultimately for our shareholders, our investors. And you mentioned your superpower is recruiting. For those that are listening in, any tips in terms of how to further develop a superpower like that? Because it's certainly a very important one, particularly for folks in leadership positions. So I try to interview 10 people for every position that I'm going to hire. And I find there's often a reflexive desire to sort of fill the position, right? I want to be done. I have so many other things. I got to move on. And the other thing, Rahul, that I do is when someone interviews at Kura, they interview with a lot of people. We'll bring them back sometimes two and three times, and they'll say, I feel like I've met half the company. And that's intentional because 
Culture is a very important part of what we do. It's particularly important now that 50% of our time we're interacting in this format, right? In a virtual format. It's one thing to do conflict resolution and work things through together when you're in person. It's a completely different beast when you're doing it virtually. And so you really want people who are going to be additive to the culture that you're building. That I think are the two things that work for me is talk to a lot of people, have high standards, don't compromise. And then as you're hiring a people, get those a people to help you find more a people. And oftentimes my team will see things in candidates that I didn't see because I was too interested in some story they told, or we just didn't have time to get to that aspect of their background. So that's worked for me. And I've done it at the board level. I've done it at the level of the C-suite all the way down through the organization. There's no magic to it. It's just a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline, ask a lot of questions, do a lot of diligence. It's the hardest and probably the most important thing we do. Because if you get the wrong person in, Oh man, I mean, that is just a nightmare to fix that, to fix it when you've got the wrong person. You save yourself so much trouble if you just avoid that from the get-go. Yeah, certainly agree. Great advice, Troy. Now switching gears a bit, would love if you could provide your perspective on where you think cancer drug development is headed, where it needs to head, and where you still think there's unmet need. So let's start with the last part of your question, right? Where is there still unmet need? A passion of mine in oncology, and I've done, again, multiple oncology companies, a passion for me is the area of resistance. 90% of patients with cancer who have metastatic disease are going to die of that metastatic disease, right? And still today, the best chance you have is early detection and surgical excision. And I say that as a drug developer, right? We have to pay attention to resistance. We also have to pay attention to patients' quality of life. And you've seen this with regulatory initiatives from the FDA, for example, Project Optimus. We were one of the first companies at Kerr Oncology to go through Project Optimus. And when we announced it, I remember we did a call and the investment community was like, wait, what? Like, what did you guys do wrong? How did you get trapped in this Project Optimus? And now every company in oncology is going through it because the FDA says, It's no longer about just push the dose, right? And tolerability be darned. You're going to go to now, what is the lowest dose with maximum efficacy? Where I see the field going, Rahul, is combinations and particularly addressing the question of resistance. And if you look at the two major pillars of what we're doing at Kerr Oncology, menin inhibition in the context of acute leukemia and pharnaceal transferase inhibition in the context of other targeted therapies, KRAS inhibitors, EGFR inhibitors, PI3 kinase alpha inhibitors, both of those are intended to delay or prevent the onset of adaptive resistance. Because that's ultimately, we're really good at drugging targets. We're really good at driving responses in patients. We suck at dealing with resistance. And resistance is the same scientific problem as tumorigenesis is. It's just the other side of the coin. So for us, that's what I'm doing professionally. It's something I'm really passionate about, this whole concept of better medicines for patients, specifically with a focus on adaptive resistance. And then with that background, let's talk about the work that you're now pursuing at Cura and where you are from a development perspective. Sure. As I mentioned, we have two major pillars at the company. 
The first pillar is work that we're doing around inhibition of the menin MLL interaction, which, you know, the, probably the most immediate opportunity for patients is going to be in acute leukemias. The other opportunity is a passion of mine, actually, a passion for Cura, but particularly a passion of mine, and that is a therapeutic target called Farnesyl transferase. If you're older than about 40, 45, and you've been in this industry long enough, odds are you've worked on a Farnesyl transferase inhibitor program at some point in your career. It was at its time, back when I was early in graduate school, it was going to be the KRAS killer. And ultimately, all those programs and all those major pharmas crashed and burned. I think we've now at Cura figured it out. I think we've figured out the killer application, and it's going to be Farnesyl transferase inhibitors in combination with other targeted therapies. Turning Rahul back to just maybe a couple of minutes on each, for men in inhibition, what we're doing is something that I think is pretty remarkable. We are disrupting a protein-protein interaction that governs or regulates the expression of a set of genes that determine whether leukemic blasts remain immature and immortal, or whether they differentiate into fully mature cells. When you break up that protein-protein interaction, you basically trick the blast into differentiating. And that blast differentiates into, let's say, a granulocyte. It has all the other genetic damage. It lives a few weeks, and then it dies off, and it's replaced by a new cell that has none of that. And as a result, you can do two things. You can drive deep, durable remissions in patients who failed many lines of therapy. And effectively, you combine very well with everything else because you're not killing tumor cells. You're just tricking them into differentiating. The MLL protein, Rahul, sits at the nexus of sort of the murderer's row of oncogenic proteins in AML. It sits upstream of FLT3, IDH1 and 2, DNMT3A, plays a role with BCL2, with MCL1. The docs that are using it in our trials, and we're currently in a registration-enabling phase two study which if successful, will support a first marketing application in relapsed refractory NPM1 mutant AML. That's about, NPM1 mutant AML is about 30% of patients with AML. The docs are describing menin inhibitors and ziftomenib in particular, Rahul, as transformational for patients. And that's really what you want to be shooting for. You want to take AML and do what we've done successfully with myeloma, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. How do we drive durable remissions? How do we deal with resistance? How do we allow patients to live otherwise normal lives where they feel like the only reason they know that they're on a drug is they take a pill every morning? That's menin inhibitors, just a minute or two on FTIs. As I mentioned, farnesyl transferase inhibitors were all the rage 20, 30 years ago. They crashed and burned across the board. And the reason they crashed and burned was twofold. We as an industry, we didn't understand the biology of what we were doing and next generation sequencing hadn't been invented. The reason I got interested in it, and I owe a lot of credit to my good friend, Peter Leibowitz, who runs oncology research and development at Janssen. Peter was kind of our patron on the KRAS program at Wellspring. And I went to Peter and I said, you know, you have tipifarnib. And Peter said, yeah, we do. And I said, it should work in HRAS mutant patients. And he said, yeah, it should. Peter had done his PhD thesis on farnesyl transferase. And I said, Peter, why aren't you doing it? And he said, Troy, even J&J, &J, like we have only so much money. We can only do so many things. So you can imagine my next question, can I have it? <laughs> and it's taken us a number of years, Rahul, but I'll just tell you the killer app is pretty interesting. 
When you hit a tumor cell with another targeted therapy, like a KRAS inhibitor, that tumor cell undergoes resistance and that resistance is highly choreographed. It's not random, right? Tumor cells, they will do whatever they can to evade drug pressure. Some of those key mechanisms, Rahul, are farnesylation dependent. So the killer application was always there. We just didn't have next-gen sequencing and the partner drugs hadn't yet been invented. Those FTI programs were put on the shelf right around the time EGFR inhibitors kind of came to be. And that was what really ushered in this era of precision medicine. So you'll see that's where we're going. We have Tipifarnib, our first-gen FTI in combination with Alpelisib in head and neck. We're going to take 2806, which is our Ferrari of an FTI. We're taking that forward with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor in kidney cancer and a KRAS inhibitor in non-small cell lung cancer. I think FTIs could ultimately become one of the most important therapeutic classes in cancer drug development, but we'll see. You know, it's an exciting time. It's going to make a great book at some point, and we're just a couple of years away, I think, from kind of the big finish. We'll see. As you can tell, I'm like super excited. Yeah, certainly seems like you've been highly productive and your team has been highly productive over the last couple of years, and there's a lot to look forward to. I'm curious, given how the capital markets have changed over the last couple of years, has that made you change your strategy at all in terms of where you focus or how you operate or given you know, the number of assets you have at later stages, did you not need to really change course at all? I think the same things, it's a good question, Well, I think the same things remain true. Do a few things, do them well, raise more money than you think you need. Everything takes longer. Everything's more complicated. Unfortunately, in the public markets, about 70% of trading is algorithmic. And the other thing is because of the way the funds are structured, much of what the funds are looking for is kind of catalyst-driven events. And biotech is, yeah, there are catalysts, but as I say, drug development is often, it takes longer, it's more complicated. It's not a widget-making business. The advantage of the public markets is drug development's expensive. You need access to large amounts of capital. And I can think of no better place than the US public markets. But what you've seen us do, Rahul, is to be disciplined. We're doing menin inhibitors and farnesyl transferase. We're not trying to have a huge pipeline. We're trying to really go after big problems, try to be sort of fearless scientific innovators. If we're successful, our shareholders will be disproportionately rewarded. I think the days of trying to do so many things... We'll see that come again, but right now you got to sort of hunker down and get a few things done and not get distracted. Yeah. And Troy, on that point of hunkering down, there's certainly been quite a bit of innovation in terms of drug development and so on over the last couple of years. I'm curious from an operational perspective, are there any challenges given your tenure at seven different companies now, are there any operational challenges that you feel have still not been addressed for the ecosystem that we need to talk about. This is not a shameless plug for you, although it'll probably resonate. What small biotech companies do well is kind of the bleeding edge of R&D innovation and smaller trials, signal seeking. You can do registration. Where we get massively outgunned is multiple global registration enabling trials. That's where basically the multinationals that have the operational reach, 
You know, they have people in every country in Western Europe. They have relationships with every site. It's very difficult as a small company to crack into that. And it's very difficult to try to do it in more than one area. That's where I say, again, you have to focus. You have to pick your battles. You can have a great drug and you get out executed by an organization that can just It has the people, the talent, the infrastructure to be able to do clinical development and the operational execution. That, I think, Rahul, is not a problem that the industry has solved well. The reason it's so close to my mind is I think we're going to end up there very quickly with both pillars of what we're doing. With Ziftomenib, for example, our goal is to have it be the standard of care across the continuum of treatment in AML, which means you're running registrational trials in the front line, in the maintenance setting, in the relapse setting. And I'll be honest with you, we have enough humility to say, we're probably going to need to seek a partnership to be able to compete and to be able to do the best for the patients and for the shareholders. I'd love to sit here and tell you we could do it all ourselves, Mm -hmm. but that's probably a little pie in the sky thinking. That's probably the biggest challenge as, as companies look to break into that bigger league. And you mentioned a bit already about your approach to partnering, but just curious if that approach has changed given what's going on in the capital markets at all, just your perspective for perhaps first-time entrepreneurs that are listening in. Yeah. Maybe I'll answer the question slightly differently, Rahul. And that is, I often see people who say, I need to take a company public. And you say, well, why is that? What I've strived with, if you go back again, Cura Public Company, we took it public directly out of Wellspring as a Form 10 with a couple of large shareholders. Avidity was kind of the classical venture build to public company. Wellspring was entirely financed by its founders, myself, Kayvon, Yi, Pingda. What problem, Rahul, are you trying to solve? And then what's the right way to do it? To your specific point at Cura, if you're a public company and you're thinking about a partnership, you have to balance the needs of your company with the needs of your shareholders. Your shareholders need to have an investment thesis. They're not looking to buy a royalty stream. If they can't see a path to significant growth, they're going to go do something else. And so as you think about it, you need to retain sufficient development and commercial rights that you're a vibrant entity that attracts new capital. And those deals can be done, Rahul, but that goes back to pick big, hard problems, right? Swing for the fences. Better to try to succeed there than do something, me too, be the seventh or eighth approach to a particular target or some kind of incremental advance. You want to have something that's really, I think, transformational. And then that allows that flywheel of partnership, private, public capital to allow your company to keep accelerating and creating value. That's where talking to lots of people, people have been so generous with me. And when I go and say, hey, can I just bounce something off of you? And I try to do the same. If somebody reaches out to me through LinkedIn or gives me a call and says, hey, can I pick your brain for half an hour? I'll always take that call because Mm. I'm fortunate people did it for me. I have to now pay it forward. I love that approach, Troy. We talked a little bit beforehand about boards and you obviously have sat on a number of boards. This is a two-part question. One is when you're switching that hat from, hey, I'm a CEO to now I'm a board member, talk to us about how your approach to board meetings changes and what you think your responsibility is when you have your board member hat on. And then secondly, I'm sure you've seen a lot of boards, your perspective on what it takes to have a really amazing, productive board for a company, particularly in biotech. 
Sure. So on the first question, and I'm assuming with your question, Rahul, you're asking when you're sitting as a board member on an outside board. So I think the most important thing to remember is you don't run the company. (laughs) Your job is to make sure, do they have the right flight plan? Are they at the right altitude? Do they have enough fuel? Do they have the right crew on board? That's it. So often I'll see board members or I'll hear board members who are kind of trying to reach over from the back seat and start driving. That's a disaster. That's a recipe for disaster. If you don't have confidence in leadership, change leadership. But it's the board's job to make sure they're really a check on, from the shareholder's perspective, internal controls audit, good governance, particularly around compensation? And then do you have the right people? And do those people have the right strategy? That's, I think, the right role and the mindset role you have to go into. In terms of what does that take? The best boards are serial operators who understand that because you now, as an outside board member, you're going to view it very differently. Being a CEO, you're going to know what that CEO is thinking. So my lead independent director at Cura, for example, is Fahim Hasnain, who is just legendary in biotech. And Fahim's phenomenal because he knows when to contribute. He knows kind of how to guide me and nudge me. He and I will have conversations where he'll say, Troy, you're at it every day. You know, you're living this. I'll give you my advice and what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking, but ultimately it's your call. And that sort of give and take to have them, to have someone like Fahim or Mary Zella is another one, Carol Schaefer, who is my audit committee chair. They're just so good because they serve that role as a check on me and a check on my team, but they're not trying to drive the company. So the best you can do, Rahul, are serial operators. They can be from pharma. Often the people who are the best are people who've had a couple of tours of duty through small to mid-sized biotech. You know, you see a lot in a biotech. Biotechs, you feel like you're living dog years, you know? So you've been through a couple of tours of those and you start to see a lot of pattern recognition. Yeah. So on that point of dog years, which I love, I'm sure your role is constantly evolving as your company is scaling. And I'm curious how your own mental model for what your job is at Cura evolves from when you're 5, 10, 15 to 150 and being able to then zoom out. And what have you found that works really well for you to make sure that you're doing what the company needs given where the company is from a scaling perspective? Yeah. So a couple of things. I think if you talk to any of the people that I've worked with across my various lives, they will tell you I'm unusually close to the science. And I think you have to stay close to the science. If you if you stay close to the science, everyone will stay close to the science. And I'm fortunate that I'm scientifically trained and I've been doing this a long time, but this is a data-driven business. And that's not to say you're going to do that when you're sort of a fully commercial company. Those are a different set of issues. But for a research and development company, as you're approaching commercialization, be driven by science. The other thing that I've found, Rahul, that it's pretty consistent as you scale from 15 to 150 to, I think, beyond, find the best people you can, empower them, give them big, audacious goals, really challenge them to do more than they think they can do, and then protect them. Tell them, look, I'll have your back if it doesn't go well. And if it does go well, you get all the glory. And then make sure you bust your ass to get them the resources that they need. Get the money, get the people, get the IP. You know, 
try to make them successful. I said earlier in this conversation, if we'd done things my way in each of these companies, I know we would have hit the rocks, right? What I did was I generally have the right idea as to what problem are we trying to solve? I'm just not always the best at finding the best path up the mountain. But if you do it that way, that's a very scalable model. And then constantly be giving your people the tools that they need to scale because they've got to then do that same model to the next layer and the next layer and give people room to grow. That's what I've found works thus far. That's the approach I'm going to take as we continue to grow and as we continue to advance toward commercialization. I think it's working pretty well so far. Yeah, sounds like it, Troy. Before we let you run, and I've already asked you to reflect quite a bit, so please humor me one last time. Given all that you've seen now across your career, curious what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? Trust your instincts. Trust your instincts. Trust your instincts about people. Trust your instincts about programs. I think too often, Rahul, we kind of ignore that inner voice. We convince ourselves and, you know, there's whole schools of thought, like blink and all kinds of things, right? Think fast. Your instinct is usually telling you something. If you've gotten to this point where you're successful, trust your instincts, but verify, right? I usually get there, Rahul. I wish I would have done it a little sooner. Yeah. It often, I think, may save some pain and heartache down the road. Great. Well, Troy, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for sharing, I'm sure, what's a small piece of your experience and the exciting work that you and your team are pursuing at Cura. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Same here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.